Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab Podcast. We are on episode 144. Today, we are hanging out with my buddy Mitch Joel. And Mitch is a uh, speaker and author and has been in the speaking industry for many, many years now. Speaks to some of the biggest corporations around. I mean, this is a guy that works with, with Walmart and Google and Starbucks and just major, major companies. We talk exactly through uh, how he got started and his his. He has a crazy story. I'll tell you now, there's there's some crazy stories about getting started as a speaker, and his is uh, one of the craziest. So we talked through how he got started, how his first event that he keynoted for was actually for 6,000 people, and uh, you're going to want to stick around to see how that went. Did he bomb? Did he kill it? You'll have to wait and see. So we talk about that. We talk about how he positions his personal brand within his business and company. So uh, Mitch does a lot of speaking, but he also is a CEO and president of a company. So we talk through exactly how he kind of navigates those two worlds. Let's talk about how he recommends you make the leap from a $5,000 speaker to being a $10,000, $15,000, speaker. Maybe for you, you're in that spot where you're getting, you know, around five thousand or below, and you're going, "Hey, how do I become a a ten thousand, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars speaker? What are the things that I need to change? What are the things I need to improve upon in order to make that leap?" And so Mitch walks through what he recommends for making that leap. Let's talk about the secret sauce of how he creates his talks and how they are always a work in progress. So I think you're going to enjoy that as well as the different types of speakers that uh, Mitch has identified and which one you should be. All right. So a lot of great stuff here from a veteran in the speaking industry. I think you're really going to dig this and enjoy this. Before we get to this, let me uh, again remind you, uh, we'd love for you to come hang out with us sometime. We walk through and teach a specific step-by-step system on exactly how to find and book paid speaking engagements. We do that every single week and we do that over at freespeakerworkshop.com. So whether you're a brand new speaker or you're a veteran speaker or you're somewhere in between, if you are looking for a step-by-step way to find and book paid speaking engagements, then you definitely want to check out freespeakerworkshop.com. We would love for you to be a part of that. All right, let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with my buddy, Mitch Joel. Enjoy. What's up, my friends? Graham Baldwin here. Today, I'm hanging out with my buddy Mitch Joel, who is a—he's uh, just—he's a bigwig in, in all in all forms of, of speaking and books and all of the above. So, Mitch, how are you today, brother? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Good you to bet, speak man. with you. Hey, so first of all, I want to dig into your story about how you got into speaking. But before we get there, why don't we kind of lay out what, what does speaking look like today? Because you speak, you write books. Do you do consulting as well? Yeah, it's an interesting. I have one of those strange speaker stories. I really am president of Miram, which is a global digital marketing agency. This agency actually started off in 2000 as Twist Image, 
It was a local business that I had started with three other business partners that we grew over the years that we sold to WPP, which is like the largest advertising communications network in the world. It's like a $30 billion company. And I stayed on to be president of this new entity called Miram, which is an amalgamation of many other agencies that they had acquired geographically different than us. And now Miram's, you know, 2,000 plus people uh, in 20 plus countries. And so that's my, my main title. My job, my real job hasn't really changed since 2002-ish where I'm sort of the guy who goes out on the road. I speak. I create a lot of content. I write blog post articles. I write, I've written two books. I've got a third one that I'm, I'm currently sort of tinkering with. I do the public speaking thing, probably 40 to 60 gigs a year. I do a podcast every week, which I've been doing and all that content and stuff I've literally been doing for well over a decade. Like I was blogging before most people were blogging and podcasting before most people were podcasting. And then public speaking just became this amazing way to avoid me having to sell one-to-one. I mean, I just dreaded like getting in the car and driving on the highway and knocking on corporations' doors. Do you need a website? Do you need social media? Do you need a mobile app? And I just got into speaking and thought it was a really great way to talk about the industry that I serve and at the same time have people say, how do we work together? Yeah. All right. So in, in some ways, you're basically, you're representing your own company. You're representing, you're kind of the face of that, but you're also, it sounds like in some ways, almost the rainmaker for the company. Yeah. I mean, I don't like the like a Rainmaker thought leader right. titles, but that would be the sort of bucket of what I do. The caveat to it, which is very unique, is that I have representation with two of the largest speaking bureaus and my content as I present it has no branding related to Miram and no examples of our work. So I do zero shilling of what we do at Miram from the stage. It really is much more about the intersection of how are consumers connecting to brands through technology today and what does it look like? Gotcha. Like, have you been speaking on that your entire career or as, in terms of like being a representative for Miram or is that kind of evolved into what it is today? Yeah, again, it's so, sort of a strange thing. If you saw me on stage, I'm not a representative of Miram. I just look like any other speaker who has yeah. a, a topic of interest. But I've spent a lot of my energy focusing on what I call my content center of excellence. And it's just an exercise that I encourage every speaker or, or person who's creating content to do, which is you sort of draw a triangle and you go, what are the three areas that I focus on? So for me, it was brands, consumers, and technology. And then in the middle, you create a bullseye. So what's the focus of it? And for me, it's always been marketing media. Now, if when I say that, I know a lot of people who are listening are like, there's a lot of people who talk about brands and technology and consumers. It's sure. true. But when I started doing it in 2003, not many people were doing it. And I believe what happens over time, and this is an important lesson for all speakers, is you go from having a unique area of content mm-hmm. to a unique voice in your area. And that's been the real trajectory of what's changed from when I started, where I was one of the first people talking about brands, consumers, technology, what the internet was very new. What do we talk about? Social media was very new to the moment now where I believe over time and the work that I put in, I have a unique voice in that area. So the the sort of core area of what I speak about doesn't have to be unique, but it's my voice now that has become unique in that area. Gotcha. So it sounds like if I'm understanding correctly, that you are kind of positioning yourself as Mitch Joel, the the personal brand who just also happens to do some work with Miram? No, I, I, I would, I would position it as Mitch Joel is president of Miram. Okay. And he's also a best-selling author, 
journalist, et cetera. I really do try and keep the two as closely connected as possible so that one, there is that connection to the work that I do, but I do it in an unbranded way when I'm on stage, because, you know, if you're a major brand, call it P&G, and you've got already a ton of agencies to have another agency come up there and pitch isn't exactly what they want, but to have somebody come up and explain to them what's shifted in terms of how consumers connect to us because of technology and marketing, that's why I sort of took it away. I was finding I was not getting gigs because they were like, we don't want an agency person on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the sort of gap between the two, but it's not really a gap. It's, it really, it's really actually an amazing way to validate and qualify the best potential people to work with. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, and the reason I asked it is I know that some people want to be the, I, I want to just show up and speak and I want to do 60, 70 events a year and that's it. And I don't need to represent anything else. I just want to do this thing. But then there's plenty of people who like yourself, who they are a speaker, but they also have this other thing that they do. And speaking works really, really well in terms of being almost like paid lead generation, where it sounds like yeah. in, your, in your situation, a lot of the business that you generate for Miriam comes directly from your speaking. And so they can, the two can work in hand in hand really, really well. But like you're saying, it is kind of that delicate dance of the clients don't want to spend a bunch of money to bring in a speaker who's just going to pitch something from stage. Their own stuff. Yeah. So I I will tell you that in the acquisition process with WPP, they were very much fixated on this weird thing that we had monetized what they would call thought leadership. If you're an agency guy and some association or brand calls you, you go because it's a potential biz dev thing. And so you want to sort of dance into your wares. They were just fascinated with the fact that I had secured, you know, bureau talent, that I had done all the, the types of events I've done, the book deals, my literary agent. They were just like, how, like the sort of most well-known names in the industry don't do that. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's a unique thing where you're right. I try and explain to people that it somewhat offsets the, offsets the cost of biz dev. Right. While at the same time, you're right, it, it is a personal brand. And, and the struggle is and always has been for over a decade. How do you make sure that like what Mitch Joel is saying out in the world is somehow connected to Miram? And the answer is by by always having it be Mitch Joel dash President Miram. Like that is the sort of brand I always try and push out. So when someone says we're having a digital expert or a marketing person or an innovation person come in, I'm always like it, President of Miram and then say what you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gotcha. Whenever you first got into speaking, like, what you remember some of your first early gigs that you did? Yeah, I used to be in the music industry before I was in, in, in the marketing business, and that was in the late 80s. You would always hear the stories of like somebody walked into a bar and discovered this person, and right. next thing you know, and you, you just, there were unfathomable, unrealistic stories. Right. And yet, my speaking story is literally that. I had attended a a very well-known day-long seminar thing in Canada called The Power Within. And this one was focused on sales. And at the time, I had no money. I bought a ticket. It was in Toronto. I live in Montreal. I drove six hours to get to an 8 or 9 a.m. event. So I woke up like 3 in the morning, whatever. It was crazy. It was like midnight. I don't remember. And the thing with this event was you had to buy the ticket through through an actual person. So I connected with the person. And I happened to know one or two of the speakers because I was a big business book nerd. So I was sort of just nerding out as a fanboy. Go to this event, meet the guy, meet a couple of the speakers, hang in a little bit after, drive home exhausted, wind up having a coffee with this guy at one point when I'm traveling to Toronto for business. He introduces me to the owner of this company. We connect for a bit. And one day the guy's just like, you know, if you're ever in town and you need some office space, we're sort of growing here, but we have room. So I would sort of just park my bag there while I was doing my sales calls in Toronto. And I was sitting in that office and one day he walked in and he was like, you know, I think I want to put you up on stage. And I was like, 
about what he's like just the way you're building your sort of this personal brand thing of like you know like again it was you know early days like 2004 2005 of blogging and early days of podcasting and there was no twitter at the time or anything like that it's like i think people should hear this story and i said okay i'll do it not knowing or realizing what it was and then within a week my first gig was in edmonton in front of 6000 people with dr phil as a headliner that was your and first gig that was my first gig. And so when he said that, I sort of like went, oh, my Lord. And what I did was I actually went out and I took it really seriously. I didn't sort of like panic the last day. I planned out like months ahead of working with some corporate trainers. I worked with a friend of mine who had been a stand-up comedian just to sort of give me some pointers on stage. I mean, I was totally anxiety, panic attack, like just freaking out. Sure. And so I managed to pull it together and make it happen in a very terrifying it was really anxiety ridden. Like it was not a fun, I don't want to say it's a fun experience. And a lot of yeah. speakers are like, I just felt the blood up there and I loved it. I just was panicked the whole time. And I got off stage thinking I just survived, you know, like a hand just crossed that finish line, just made it. Yeah. And um, a speaking bureau called Speaker Spotlight, which is one of the biggest speaking bureaus in Canada. One of the reps came up to me and basically said, you know, how long have you been speaking? And I was like, that was it. That was my first one. <laughs> You've seen my entire career. Yeah, yeah. And she was like, are you kidding me? And I was like, no. She's like, I'd like to speak with you. And we connected. And I literally got signed to one of the largest speaking bureaus off of that one gig that one day. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. So it's like one of those crazy, like someone walked into a bar and it was Mick Jagger and he signed you to a record, record label. It was one of those like crazy things. Yeah. And it's one of those like, like, yes, that is true. But there's also, like you said, like th there's a lot going on behind the scenes that position you to be in that spot. So, you know, you driving six hours through the night to go to something, to making connections, to meeting with people, to landing this, you know, random gig, but not just like, well, you know, it's my first time. So everyone's got 6,000 people in the audience. They're going to give me a pass if I just show up and wing it. Like, I'm going to bust my butt. I'm going to do a lot of research. I'm going to do a lot of practice and rehearsal and preparation so that by, by the time I show up, even though this is my first time, I want to do the best of my ability. And you really put yourself in a position there that seems like it obviously really paid off well. Yeah. And, there, you know, a couple of the sort of key lessons was for sure the rehearsal and taking it seriously. I could have been the executive that gets up there and says, you know, thank you so much for inviting me. Candidly, I'm just an executive and I don't really do public speaking. Here's some thoughts, which, you know, just sucks all the air out of the room. So you're right in the sense of I, I took it really seriously and I didn't know my skill level and I, you know, until many years after that, I don't think you sort of just work it out and figure it out there. So that was one. The other thing is because I was such a, a nerd about this stuff, whether it was business books or going to attend events or watching people speak at the time, I was really passionate about it. I still am. I realized that there was like this sort of little alleyway for my content, which was how can you really provide things that I could walk away with if I was in the audience today to change my career and make it better while at the same time being fun and entertaining. And, you know, at that point I was integrating videos. And again, this is early days of Seth Godin and Tom Peters of like big images only. Right. So I didn't have many bullet, like I'd done a lot of things that now a lot of speakers might take for granted, but back then you just didn't see that much. And so that was the second thing. The third thing I did was, as you probably can tell by this conversation, and I'm sure people like Michael Port and Amy Amy Port will kill me because I, I'm not good at beats and stopping and pausing. I move really fast. Mm -hmm. That was the other thing I wanted to bring to it. I felt that a lot of the speakers after a couple of minutes are just like, you know, sort of slugging your shoulders in the audience, like, let's go. I wanted to like make myself move it like 
1.5x speed yeah. of the average speaker right. so that they're sort of forced to not catch everything or be unsure. That guy, you know, when I get feedback, like he speaks too fast, I was like, good. Like right. I'm, I was looking at it like I wanted to retrain. It's not the best thing now that I'm sort of becoming more a student of speaking and the skill and craft of it. But I, I certainly tried to push the medium forward. And it really came from a story that I had heard. Uh, remember the TV show ER? Uh-huh. Yeah. So apparently when the TV show ER came out, the regular script for a, an hour drama was something like, let's call it 600 pages. And the ER script was about 900 pages. Hmm. They didn't have more time. They were cramming in more stuff and making the pace move. And I remember hearing that story and it's sticking with me. Like, that's a really interesting way to change the dynamic or make yourself unique in a world where they're going to probably be exposed to a lot of non-visual people speaking on stage with their hands and moving a lot like a Tony Robbins to, you know, other speakers who are going to be there with this sort of 20 bullet points going through stuff where it's so much in the minutia. I want to like hybrid that, like hyper visual, have it be a real experience, have the, 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 the images really be a part of the narrative, those were some of the things that I, I think really made people be like, well, this is different. Right. Do you still feel like you speak that fast? I've always felt like for me personally, I speak very, very quickly. And I, yeah. I like that because I, I think it does it focus, it forces people to focus and forces, forces people to, to really pay attention and, and track. The more time I'm spending with amazing speaking coaches like Nick Morgan and Michael Port and Amy Port, the more I'm starting to really understand this theory of their, you know, they call it beats. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something very important that I want you to listen to. You're waiting, right? Oh, Versus right. this is something very important that I want you to listen to because it, this is, your brain does need that time to go like, what? Yes, I should listen. I'm going to move in. So it's more of like the performance stuff of that. But yeah, I mean, I, I am somebody who spent a lot of time having conversations and just communicating. I don't say um a lot. I don't say ah a lot. I don't say sure. I don't start off with okay or whatever. I move very, very quickly because of just the nature of how I've always had conversation. I'm working hard on those beats to try and make people have a moment to take a breath. I could speak forever, as you could probably tell right now. Right. So really let's, fast. Let's go back to, do so you do that first event, 6,000 people, the bureau happens to be there and you look out there, look at the draw. From there, were most of the events that you did from that point forward through the bureau? Were you starting to book anything on your own? Because it sounds like, I mean, if you have like literally zero speaking experience on stage, but also just speaking business experience, obviously most speakers don't have the luxury of a bureau that's, that's finding them, the, the diamond in the rough there. So what was the business looking like from that point forward? Yeah, I mean, well, one is when you start realizing like how much you're going to be paid from the bureau, you start like, you know, what? Like you, that's how this works. Like it's very shocking when you start seeing how, you know, how a $5,000 speaker is seen in the market versus a $15,000 speaker versus a 40 or a 60. Yeah. And just seeing that and the ability to get to that sort of 15 or that 10 tranche really quickly was very motivating for me because one, it was double yeah. in terms of income, but two, it just put you in a different category. Right. So that's one side of the sort of dynamics that I always encourage people who are in like the two, three, four, five, six thousand $6,000 range is you got to start thinking about 15 really quickly because at that level, you start getting access to things and the value in your perception 
is seen very, very differently. So that's one side of it. The other side of it was, it's a weird world where I'm exclusive with speakers, but I also have another bureau and I book direct. So it's a weird world where I couldn't only be with one exclusive bureau because of the nature of what I was trying to do with the business. So what happened then is people like, you know, the National Retail Federation would call me to come and do an event. Then I met the guys from Google. And then the people from Google wanted me to come and do their events to speak to their top 300 brands or their, you know, YouTube event. Or And again, this is early days of that. And I couldn't filter that through the, through the bureau because I would do it for free or just expenses because it was good biz dev. So the model that we worked at for business was if it's direct, I'm only doing it because there's a biz dev opportunity, even though there might be a speaking fee involved in it. Typically, if anything comes in for me that I feel is not biz dev, it goes right to the bureau. So I'm using speaker spotlight primarily in Canada. And then I use leading authorities. Now I was with greater talent for a long time uh, in the US and Europe and and whatever it might be. And that's sort of the, the filtering of the business. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that definitely that definitely makes sense there. I, I'm curious too. You mentioned that one of the best things for you was going from you know the two, three, four, five range to ten, fifteen very, very quickly. What were some things that you did early on to make that leap? And then even uh, and again, this was you know ten plus years ago. But what would you recommend for speakers who are in that spot today? Because I know for me that that's a question we get a lot from speakers who are, who are going. Yeah. I'm charged five. I've been charging five forever. I want to get to ten. I want to get to fifteen. What things need to be in place in order to make that leap? One is whatever you're delivering on stage has to be such that a planner or an organizer, when they see you, knows you're a 15-plus speaker, meaning the quality of it, the seamlessness of it, the experience of it, how you handle yourself, how you handle the environment, how you deliver it, they know. They can sniff it out. It's what they do. They can see right away that this person is in this bucket or that bucket. So it's sort of the killing it on stage theology. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Scott Stratton is an excellent example of someone who's done that, or a Sally Hogshead would be another great example of someone who's done that. That's one. Two is, I really believe to move up to that level, you need to have a some form of significant platform. Now, people think that means Twitter followers or Facebook followers. It doesn't. It could just mean that you're just a very well-respected contributor to, like for me, it would be a Harvard Business Review or an Inc. magazine or even a Huffington Post. I mean, any of those where you've really established by just them optically looking at it, there's some social proof, not one or two articles randomly, but like consistently delivering really relevant and powerful content against the subject that you're the SME on, a subject matter expert in. So I think the platform is really important. And again, I say this because I come from a world of, of publishing originally before the internet. So I didn't have my own mag. Actually, I did have my own magazines back then. But prior to that, what really gave me the platform was the fact that I wrote for other platforms. Yeah. You know, I was writing for, for magazines like Circus Magazine and Burn or whatever it was in the rock music world at the time. So that's the other part. The third one is while I think books are becoming somewhat Um, not tired, but just because of the nature of books, I think their value has shrunk a little. It certainly does help. I mean, there's no denying the fact that when somebody hears that you have either major literary representation or that you are published on a major publishing house, or you've done it on your own with real significant social proofing, that there's a story to tell. Mm -hmm. The the thing with that is you can get away with one of those three. You're going to do a lot better with two of those three, but shoot for three of those three. And if you can shoot for those three, there's no chance you're going to fall below a 15. 
Yeah. You just won't. If you've got a decent book or two, if you've got some sort of credibility in the, in the ecosystem around the content that you create and you're killing it on stage, I mean, sky's the limit. Right. Going back to the first one that you mentioned in terms of just being able to kill it on stage, how, I think it's it's one of those things that's always kind of, it's a little bit subjective and it's sometimes yeah. difficult for speakers to be self-aware enough to recognize if they're killing it on stage or not. Because there's times where speakers are going, I'm killing it. And the audience is going, no, you're not. And vice versa as well, where you have the, not this like false humility of, I'm, you know, I'm not that good. And in reality is like, they're, they're really, really good at what they do. So how do you yeah. find that speakers can determine, am I killing it or not? Get somebody who actually really does this for a living to let you know that you have something or you don't have something. Mm -hmm. And when you really bring in a professional, asking your friends for feedback is the worst thing ever. Asking your peers sometimes is because they're not experts at that. There's also this idea that Jerry Seinfeld talks about this. And I think there's a lot of correlation between what we do as professional speakers and stand-up comedians where it's like, you know, you want to ask other, other comedians if they think it's funny or get their real feedback because they know the craft of it. Yeah. But it is true that if you're on stage and you're not getting laughs from people who have no idea what comedy is, mm -hmm. there's a problem. So I don't think it's a question of people clapping or laughing. Tom Webster, mm -hmm. who's also a really phenomenal speaker and a good buddy of mine, would often say that, or he tells me this story, and it sort of happened to me organically, and I sort of really aligned to the story, that there's a lot of people who like love the feedback of that person was hysterical or they made me laugh or it was really entertaining. It's like that's all vanity-based feedback. The feedback you really want to have when you're killing it is, I actually learned three things from that that I'm going to deploy in my life now. Yeah, That's the, when you're really killing it. When you're consistently getting feedback where people are saying, forget he was funny, he was good, he was likable, the images were great, she, she, she did this well. It's all about, did they actually take and do something with it? And did that feedback lead to that person rebooking you? Right, right. Those are some of the ways. But I think that if you're sort of just getting started out, the best thing you can do is invest in yourself. And that is things like heroic public speaking with, with Michael and, and Amy. I feel like I, I, I'm like a, an affiliate for them. I'm not. Or speaking to like, again, a Nick Morgan. I mean, there's so many experts in this space that people can turn to. Right. How do you find the balance between humor and content? I know that, that that's something that I personally, I, I know I've, I've, I've wondered about from time to time of, of, I like using a lot of humor. I like using a lot of stories. Uh, I like using comedy. But at the same time, you're, you're exactly right that if an audience leaves and they say, hey, that was awesome and that was hilarious, but I didn't get anything from it, it's, it's kind of a waste of everybody's time. So using humor can be a huge differentiating factor for speakers because so many speakers are just dry and boring and dull. So how do you find that balance between humor and comedy and, and also using content? The one thing I'd say, Grant, is I'd sort of push back a little bit on what you're saying. I think it's a big day when, when there's a lot of speakers and, and there are speakers who are just really funny and entertaining. And while they, they may be what my friend Avinash Kaushik at Google would call content free, mm -hmm. It's still an important thing to the day because it sort of just keeps the sure. day going. Not everybody can be exactly that. Candidly for myself, I just like I, I think what makes some of my content humorous is the fact that I try and be more like my audience than someone speaking down to them. That's one thing. The other thing is that I think being funny isn't the idea. Being memorable is. Yeah. So if I can you know, have an aside comment that might look off the cuff and something that I just improv, but is actually, you know, pedantically paced and, and, and scheduled and sequenced right. like I do with my opening. My opening is very much like that. I, I want it to sort of feel like he just sort of made something up 
but that was actually really funny or it was actually more importantly than being funny, it was really human. That was really human. And that like made me re- relate to him. And so comedy can make you relate to people, but you know, opening with a joke is a bad idea. So the opening that I, that I sort of teased out before is you're never supposed to walk up on stage and go, so how's everybody doing this? Morning? It's a wasted moment. Yeah. Like you should start with real power. And I believe that, but I do it. And I do it because I, I do it on purpose. I'll come out and go, so how's everybody doing today? And you know what it's like? It's like, clap nobody says there are a couple people do and what i say right after that is oh sorry i apologize this isn't youtube i'm actually here you can interact with me i'm a human yeah. and it's, it's not ha 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 slap your knee funny but it actually does frame that oh this guy's going to talk to us about digital media and technology and that like it sort of frames it in a way where they laugh or they get a you know they get a good chuckle out of that because it's it's true we mostly don't clap because we think it's it's a video we're watching tv or whatever right. so i'll do things things like that but i'm not like scott stratton where it's literally like you know planned idea right right I think there's definitely some truth to this. I think the sooner, if you want to use a lot of humor, the sooner you can get to humor early on, the quicker it establishes that this is going to, there's going to be humor involved in this, you know? Yeah. And the other thing is humor is not a joke. That's sure. the thing too. People think humor is a joke or a punchline. Punch right. And it's not like humor is just a sort of way of the audience knowing that you're with them and we've all experienced something similar together. And there's something sort of smiley or smirkishly good in that. You know, I watch again, like someone like Scott's trying to get or Ron tight, they get just big, big laughs and I love it. And I think it's amazing. Maybe I could do that, but I think I would need a lot of like comedic training for that. Yeah. So I'm curious, one of the things that you've had a lot of experience with is speaking to major corporations and major brands. And I know that there's a lot of speakers that aspire to that, who they want to work with the Walmarts, the Googles, the Starbucks of the world. So can you kind of talk us through what that trajectory has been like of, hey, I'm interested in speaking to now all of a sudden I'm in front of, you know, top executives for fill in the blank XYZ corporation. What what does that look like for you? Yeah. Again, I wish it was like this long, hard, arduous road of like inbound marketing and lead gen and calling. The bureau calls and goes, hey, August 15th, can you go do this thing for P&G or for Walmart or for Starbucks or for Nestle or whoever? And I look at my schedule and I go, yeah, I could do that. Let me have a call with them and make sure the content is aligned with what their objectives are. And then let's do it. And again, I'm not trying to diminish it. I'm not trying to put myself up on a pedestal. I had a very unique situation happen to me where I don't have to fight hard to get in front of those audience. Not only that, but, you know, over a decade later, I actually don't try. I'm not trying to, you know, I could speak to a society, like I just did the Society of Actuaries, and then I'll do Salesforce. And I'm not like one's better than the other. They just happen to be the ones that call that want this topic. And I'm open on that date. So my, my answer back is I try to be somewhat indiscriminate about it. I don't really care, to be honest, as long as my content is what that audience needs and that I'm going to help them learn and move ahead as an industry, as a corporation, as a brand. I get what you're saying. Do I have a list of businesses I would love to speak in front of? I do. Would I proactively call and pitch them? Not my style. It could be because I'm Canadian. Do you know what I mean? Like, right, it's just right, not right. my thing to be like, hey, do you need a speaker? But there, look, I will look online. As you know, we're connected in a couple of Facebook groups that talk about this stuff. And you know, I do see things where I'm like, wow, how does this person go to the same event year after year? And I've never been invited. I mean, 
in terms of everything optically, I've done more. I've, you know, in terms of just how you perceive it social proofing wise. And again, the answer is probably they're working it and I'm not. So I'm probably the worst person to ask about how do you work it? Uh, the answer is those three things I talked about and hopefully magic happens. <laughs> yeah. So going back to, and, and one of those three factors being that you're, you're killing it, I'm curious how your talk has evolved and changed over time and not just yeah. the talk itself, but also just the, the topic and the content. Cause what was relevant in terms of, of your industry, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago is very, very different than what it looks like today. So how do you make sure that your topic, what it is that you're speaking on at the problem that you're solving and who you're actually speaking to, you're staying ahead of that curve. So it's not, you're talking about, Hey, everybody, my space is coming. And so make sure you, you find your top eight friends. So what, what does that look like on your end? Yeah, it's a great question. It's actually sort of like my favorite secret recipe stuff behind the scenes that I love talking about. When I started, I didn't want to be the guy who was like, every speech will be its own custom experience. I didn't want that. I also didn't want to be the guy who's got their 40 slides that they do yeah. every year for 10 years. Take and so this is it. the hybrid that I worked around is, Anytime I see something that is relevant to potentially an audience, I'm going to capture and make a slide out of it. And in the early days, that slide deck went from like my initial deck to 3,000 slides in a couple of months. Now, they weren't all workable slides. They still aren't. And now that slide deck is probably 20,000 slides, to be honest. Um, but it's not one deck. It's, it's all over. It's just now it's bucketed into categories. So one is that side of it, where... You know, anything I see that could be a stat or a data or a good story, I build the deck and I have it and I can keep thinking about it and mulling it over and figuring out where it goes in the set. That was one. Two is I always knew that if my center of excellence is how brands connect to consumers through technology with marketing being in the middle, that's a pretty wide and long runway. Like, when are we not going to talk about how does technology affect our business, right? Like it's, it's always there. So the anchor in my, in my topic was always one that had a lot of longevity, a lot of legs, a lot of length. The third component of it that really took it to a whole other level was when I started watching how stand-up comedians talk about stand-up comedy. Mm -hmm. And I now deploy what I call the Louis C.K. model to public speaking, which is that Every year, I want 100% new content. Right. That doesn't mean that on January, I throw everything out and start over. It means that throughout the year, as, I, as Louis would write jokes or as I'm building slides, I'm putting stuff in, moving stuff around, figuring it out, trying to do it so that if you see me over the course of a year, every time you see me, it might be a slightly different. That example's gone. This story's here. That moved from the front to the end. All that sort of stuff so that by the year – it's actually 100% different content from when you saw me last year. I'm not perfect with that, but that is how I think about my content. The challenge with that, of course, is the marketing of it. Mm -hmm. So if you actually go onto my speaking bureau page or my speaking page, you'll see like four topics, which is fine, but it's hard because the topics are anchored around the book, right? This is the control alt delete speech. So now I'm working on one that I don't love in terms of a title because I'm struggling with it called algorithm, A-L-G-O dash R-H-Y-T-H-M, sort of like algo data plus rhythm, like creativity and brand and all that. So it, it flies when you see it. It flies as a keynote. It doesn't work well in, in when you're concurrent or stuff like that. And it's also people hear algorithm, they just think data. So I'm struggling with the title, but that is the over 100% of new content that I started post control alt delete. Yeah. So the truth is 
that in theory, it could still be control all delete algorithm if you think about it. It's just how it iterated and went. But you, you do need from a marketing perspective to have a couple of choices for the potential planner or organizer. Are you trying to come up with new content on a yearly basis for your own personal self, just to keep it engaged? Because I know it's possible for a speaker who's been doing the same talk, doing the same stories, that they can go on autopilot on stage and yet still kill it and just kind of be going through the motions, but the talk is still solid. So are you doing that for your own sake, just to keep yourself engaged? Or is it more of a marketing tool that I need to stay because I'm speaking in the, the space of technology, which is rapidly changing. I need to, for a marketing standpoint, stay ahead of the curve. I mean, it's a little bit of everything. My attitude is, if I'm showing a screenshot of Facebook, it should damn well be from that morning. Yeah. If I'm going to show a screen capture of Airbnb, it should be from that morning, not a version, which is the old logo from six years ago. But I'll give you a really great like current example of this. So one of the things I talk about is how consumers buying behavior changes dramatically because of technology. And one of the theories I talk about when it comes to streaming is not that it's streaming that that's, that's an affect of this, but rather the fact that people are now paying for access to a library like you would for Netflix over ownership. I'm going to buy a movie, have a TV show. And there was an inflection point that happened very recently where the amount of US cable subscribers has met the amount of people who are subscribed to Netflix. So that's like a pretty good validator of what I'm saying. Yeah. So you've got the little chart up there and you can talk to it and make a funny joke or whatever. Last week, Netflix surpassed it. So if you're not paying attention, if you're not doing your job, in literally four days, it went from like equal to surpassing, it's a different story. It's a different setup. It's a different visualization you're going to create on stage before you show this cool little you know, intersection graph thing. So, so I do it because I want people to feel in the audience like, so, so one is I don't customize it for the audience. I'm customizing in terms of keeping it au courant. So what I'll tell people is I'm not going to customize it for you, but you'll feel in the moment that he just built this deck this morning. Yeah. It, it, in terms of how recent the information is. So that's sort of the spirit of it. I want people to sit in the audience and be like, wow, like there is nobody who presented me more current content. Literally, he took a screenshot this morning. Right. Like, I think that, that that really shows the audience you care about them. Right. It's much more than a, uh, here's a USA Today headline from uh, 2007, something that happened back then that has nothing to do with what we're doing today, but I was too lazy as a speaker to swap out the slide. Yeah. Sometimes I have those and I sort of, I, I'll, I'll call it out. I'll say, I don't know if you know this, but the slide's actually from 2014. It's not because I'm lazy. It's because think about what happened in 2014 and how we're not doing anything about it in 2017. Right. So I don't do it because the story hasn't changed. I do it because I actually think it emphasizes a really strong point. Right, right. Since you come from a music background, I always heard it described that from speaking, it's it's not like you have this exact same talk that you do every time. It's kind of like a it's like a set list for a band, you know. So a band that has an archive of a hundred songs, well, any given concert they may only do you know twenty five or thirty of those songs, and each night it may look slightly different, and what songs they do, and what order they do it in, and what you know breaks they have in between may look different. But you're gonna get so you're gonna get a variation of the same thing every time. So it sounds like if you've built kind of this this archive of you know ten twenty thousand slides that uh, is just points data stories, just images, anything that you're gathering along the way and collecting along the way, that it could look different on any given day, but you're also still has like the same end point that you're going for. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I, I would push back on that only because as someone who's done it over a decade, really professionally, mm -hmm. and someone who's listening to this new 
don't do that. You really want to know your hour that when you get up on stage, it's not the first time you're doing it. That's the worst scenario you could be in. So the analogy that I would give for public speaking and music is more genre-based. And, and how I tell people about public speaking is I think there's three types of speakers. There's one speaker that's the improv. They're going to just get up there and whatever they're thinking that morning, they're going to go and do. Great examples of that were people like Gary Vaynerchuk in the early days. It was yeah. like whatever was on his mind just came out. He then, as I think his speaking fee went up and as his messaging changed, he got much better at moving to this next one. The next genre for me is is rock music. And rock music, you know the song, you know, there's an intro, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, you, you know what it is, sure. but you might jam a little bit in the bridge or you might move a chorus over, but you still know exactly the lyrics, exactly the notes, exactly where you're going. The third genre of music is classical music. It's sheet music. You're not missing a beat. You're not missing a tone. You know where every motion is. You know where everything is. There's nothing. You're never going to deviate. That piece of Mozart is going to be played the exact same way by every single symphony ever for this day forward. It's going to be different each night based off of the little ways and nuances of how the instrument is played. Yeah. My recommendation if you're starting off, believe it or not, is to be a classical musician. And just master that thing until you just know every single breath of every single foot, every single movement of a hand, of a, of a head gesture. I have definitely prescribed much more to the rock and roll thing. And I don't think that it's right. I just think that there's three ways. I actually do think that the improv way is the worst. And I think there's only a handful of very spectacularly amazing, successful people who can pull it off only because they are spectacularly successful and have an amazing skill of, of talking off the top of their head. I believe that most speakers don't make it because they think they're being cool by being all improv and fresh and, and content just for you. It's a terrible idea. You know, the, the analogy for, to music is if you were paying a lot of money to go see you too, do you want to see them try out a new song that they've never worked on before live in front of the audience? Or do you want to see them do you know, with or without you? Right. Now, some people who really love the band might say, I'd love to see them, but you wouldn't because it's a mess. Right. They're showing you when they're on stage something that they've spent hours practicing, rehearsing, working on. As a speaker, you have to bring that same craft to the work. You have to do that. So I, I don't hate improv speakers. I just don't recommend it. I don't hate rock and roll speakers. I just don't recommend it for new speakers. I think classical that sort of sheet music, I know exactly what the script is, and I'm really delivering it amazingly where it doesn't look like it's a script, right? You don't sit down and watch a symphony and go, I could tell they're reading the music. Right. You're like crying and sobbing because of how beautifully they're performing it. Yeah. That's what you want. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say was, was the some of the best speakers and the best comedians in the world are those that are classical speakers or classical comedians, but they make it look like improv. They make it look like uh, it's all off the cuff and they just came up with that. When in reality, they've delivered that punchline or they've told that story or they know the ebb and flow of that talk and they've done it for years and years and years, but they make it look like, it. ah, they're just you know, making it up as they go. You watch, again, there's tons of these documentaries, you know, Jerry Seinfeld's Comedian is one of the, my favorite movies of all time. And you just watch this guy grind over a word. I mean, there's that famous Pop-Tart story. Like he just had in his brain, he wanted to do this joke about Pop-Tarts. And just the, the you can look and see like, like all the notebooks on this one joke that's literally two lines, the inflection, which word goes where, how does it fit? 
you know, I don't do it as much as I should. And I'm sort of kicking myself, especially this week, because I did a lot of training this week, actually, with Michael and Amy Port, that I need to really rethink that. I sort of got not, I wouldn't say lazy. I think my stuff is always fresh and fun, but I, I sort of stepped a bit away from that craft that I need to go back to. But but you're, you are exactly, and even your choice of words, like, you know, that Pop-Tart story is so funny. Why? Because the word Pop-Tart is funny. Yeah. And like, we don't even think about that. Like he just got, he latched onto the fact that that word is funny. We need to do that more as speakers. What are the words that actually will impact the audience? It's easy to say one word. How many different ways could you say that word that might have more impact on the audience? And that's something that, again, as a writer and a thinker, I think about all the time. Well, Mitch, thank you so much, man, for uh, sharing your time, sharing your story and journey, some of the lessons that you've learned along the way. Really, really good insights. I really appreciate the, the time here. So if people want to find out more about you, what you're up to, where, where can we go? Google Mitch Joel. That's the place. We'll uh, link up to, well, I guess there's nothing to link up to there. Well, you can go to MitchJoel.com and redirects you everywhere you need to go for sure. Deal. We can definitely do that. Thanks for the time, buddy. Appreciate you. Thanks, Grant. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mitch Joel. Good stuff there from him. Hey, wasn't that crazy, that very first gig that he did for 6,000 people? That's just bonkers. Bonkers. I mean, that's just... It's a, it's like a unicorn type of story, but it, it happened and uh, made a huge difference in this business, obviously. So good stuff from from Mitch there. Hey, again, if you haven't already, definitely check out freespeakerworkshop.com. We'd love for you to join us sometime and uh, come hang out with us as we teach, again, a step-by-step system on how to find and book paid speaking engagements. Again, you can find that over at freespeakerworkshop.com. All right, boys and girls, that wraps up episode 144. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome.